Welcome, welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as usual, I have a fantabulous, wonderful, fantastic, all the adjectives guest, and that is someone who actually has been here before, Mr. Ben Miller. But I'm going to actually have Ben reintroduce himself so we can all get grounded in who he is, what he does, and then move into the conversation. So Ben, who are you? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Karis. It's good to be with you again and looking forward to this discussion today. So my name is Ben Miller. I am a clinical psychologist by training, a musician at heart, an artist on the weekends, a father, a husband, and many things. Uh, I am passionate about what we can do in the world to transform mental health. And because of that journey for me to transform mental health, I get to hang out with cool people like you. I get to chair the advisory board at Inseparable and run the Mental Health Policy Fellowship alongside many of our colleagues and do what I can to make my uh, my my imprint on the world in some positive way. Awesome. Awesome. And you also, you write, I write a lot, which is actually a good thing. And on this um, episode, I really wanted to talk to you about a recent blog that you penned, um, which is called Getting Mental Health Right for All our need to put forward policies that benefit the full continuum of mental health. And so great blog. I had lots of thoughts related to it, of course. Why wouldn't I have thoughts? But why don't we, (laughs) why don't we just sort of start from ground zero? Can you sort of summarize what the blog was all about? Yeah. So Karis, it it began with a meeting that I was in for World Mental Health Day. I was at a a prestigious university where I have some colleagues and we were really sharing about where the field is and where the field's going and where it's been. And I was just listening to these amazingly stalwart leaders, people that have been around a lot longer than you and I just share how much we've grown as a field and yet also share how troubled they are where we are. And they, the examples that they were using were examples that you, you and I have talked about. They, they were describing how they, they were witnessing in real time this window that's been open for our societies to embrace mental health slowly start to close. But while it's still open, people are making decisions around mental health, especially through policy, that feels like it's taking us backwards. And mm-hmm. the examples that they were using were examples that I'm sure we'll get into today, where we see these traditional bastions of um progressive policy, California and New York, began to regress with policies as it relates to mental illness. And and it just didn't make a lot of sense. So I, I put two and two together and started going back into my little, uh, my brain and look at the history. And the issue that I want to surface today, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is the issue of involuntary commitment or civil commitment. And And what I saw and what I wrote about was the troubling theme of us not knowing what to do around major social issues and blaming it on things like mental illness or or not necessarily blaming it, but putting the solution on the back of, well, we got to take care of the mental illness side because it's obviously that and not our inability to increase affordable housing or decrease whatever the barriers are. So that that's really it. And I can go into more detail on that. But in, in my journey to write this up, I mean, I obviously thought of you. I thought of the work that you've done. And I figured there had to be some way that, uh, you know, you were involved in this fight as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm involved in it. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, you know, I've been wondering why during this time, as you say, the window is open, people, you know, policymakers, elected officials, etc. are talking about mental health. They're talking about it. 
we're we're seeing more legislation around it, both good and I would say not so good. <laughs> and there does seem to be, as as uh, many of us have said, and I've said as well, this um, movement backwards to the backwards, rather than thinking about what do we need on the front end of things. And I don't mean on the front end, right before the door of crisis, right before the door of um, involuntary hospitalization or Mm -hmm. criminalization or being unhoused or even worse. It's not, to me, that's kind of where we are in this open door versus kind of thinking about, well, wait, what about helping way before? Like, I think it's a proverb analogy story, whatever it is about the guy who falls into the, the hole or the well or what have you. And everybody's looking down in the well and he's like, help me out, help me out. And everybody's like, oh, we can't, you know, and they try all these things to help the person out. And, uh, you know, he's still down there and everybody's looking in and none of the things they're using to help him work. And then finally somebody comes along, they look down in the hole. They're like, what's going on? Oh, that guy's down in a hole. He goes, and he climbs down in the hole to help him. And the guy says, what the heck are you doing down here? Now two of us are stuck in the hole. He goes, oh no, I've been in this hole before. I know how to get out, right? And so the both of them crawl out, right? So, so um, the the hole is a little bit like how did he how did he fall in the hole in the first place, right? Like how did he how did he like how did we get there where people are? And I would say systems, not one systems, are failing people, but also these systems exist within a social construct, and so there are all of these social issues that are happening too. So, what kind of things did you specifically talk about in your in your blog? Well, one thing that I, I lifted up, which I think is something that you pointed out, is that for as long as we've had society, and this goes all the way back to Hippocrates, we've not really known what to do around for folks with mental illness. We've always made our best guess. And and I, I call out this book, which I, I, I read and I referenced frequently because I thought it was so good. It was a book by uh, uh, Anne Harrington called Mind Fixers. And it was really looking at how psychiatry throughout its history has really just tried and struggled to find out some of these root causes of what drives mental illness. And, and, and I just, I kept playing around with these themes like, okay, let's go all the way back to four BC. And then let's go all the way back to like the 1960s. Have we really learned that much? And I think some people would argue, well, yes, we've learned, we've published a lot of papers and we've learned a lot more. But we still don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't feel like we're at a place that we've established ourselves as having like cutting edge science for all the continuum. Now, I do think we have it for some aspects of it, the best we can do, but we have so much more to go. I mean, a, a couple of things that I just flag. I mean, one, think about the last time we had a major psychotropic that was introduced into the field. Mm-hmm. You know, number two, Think about the last time we saw a major restructuring of a mental health system to allow for us to really embrace that full continuum. And so what happens for people like me and you who are kind of in the deep end of this in the policy and and programmatic world is that we have seen our policymaker friends begin to come up with heuristics or shortcuts to solve really complex issues. So, I mean, we could, we can name names here. I mean, let's, let's talk California. I mean, California, state that you and I both love for different reasons, you know, it it was attempting to restructure how it was looking at mental health by creating benefits around severity of disease. So you had mild to moderate, and then you had severe. And depending on how you fit into those buckets, 
there were different service array that were available to you. There were different funding mechanisms. There were different responsible parties. And that's a great example of a well-intended but um, misunderstood attempt to try and do something that was across the continuum. We, we slice things up, but we missed the we missed the entire point here. And yeah. I think this is something that I tried to nail on the blog is that social factors, familiar factors, all these other factors that no one wants to really talk about because they don't fit a particular medical paradigm outweigh what diagnosis you might have, outweigh what score you got on some you know measure that we've used to treat health one disease at a time. And but when you back away from that, there's actually people that are extremely socially complex that have more severe, quote unquote, severe issues than a person who might be given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Yeah. So this is my point, Karis. And I know you and I could talk for days about this stuff, but I mean, I just am watching us almost unwind our really robust thinking around mental health and making it overly reductionistic because we can't explain why things aren't getting better. It's very misguided. And I think the other thing I think has been missing, no, I don't think it's been missing. I know it's been missing. My background in industrial organizational psychology, that's my educational background, you know, has taught me a lot about number one, systems change and how systems change. Systems are made up of people. So people will also need to change. What do we know about people? People are human. What do we know about humans? Humans hate change. Okay, so we got a little issue there around like change. And then and, and then how do you manage that change? So we've learned a lot about change and change management and all sorts of systems. And I think one of the things that, you know, has been striking to me is that many of these moves, whether it be California, New York, Washington State, wherever it is, require systems to change. And they're asking them to do lots of change at the same time which is actually a, a setup for failure because it's too much change, too many people you have to change, culture, practice that you have to change, systems themselves, um, how you build and what you're using and all of these kind of things that change. How do you do all of that on a massive scale at once? I think that's kind of one, one question. The other one uh, around my, my, my background is the understanding of the value of lived experience. And, um, you know, and why I say this is part of, part of my background is it has to do with a practice of appreciative inquiry. We tend to look at the problem and try to fix the problem by microscoping the problem. Oh, here's the problem. Here's a problem. Here's a problem. But what appreciative inquiry has proven to be able to do is look at people who should have been affected by that problem, probably were, and somehow are no longer as impacted by that particular issue. Well, how did that happen? Predictively, they should have been impacted by that issue, but they weren't. So we take an appreciative inquiry approach to learn, well, what were the drivers of you moving forward? What helped you? What didn't help you? And it's we don't do that with especially people with lived experience of mental health conditions who have been through these systems and gotten through the other end of it, if you will. I would be super curious, well, how did that happen? What were some of the critical factors? Oh my gosh, like, let's learn from this. But instead, it's like, pushing folks aside, like, well, you're too well, you don't understand. And it's like, no, actually, I'm too well, I do understand. And that's the point. So I think that's also been missing in this equation. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, 
let's let's start at that second point you made around the original AI, the appreciative inquiry. I mean, I do think that there's something so profound about getting folks that understand how all the pieces fit together to be the ones that are helping in the redesign. You know, what happens in policy land is that we have a lot of, uh, again, I want to, I want to call them well-intended. There are well-intended leaders that are looking to make change without fully understanding what the evidence is or what the firsthand experience is. And so what happens is that we create these belief-based policies. And, and I, I, I mean, I, this is pick on the one that we both have already surfaced here uh, without getting too specific. Uh, if you believe that housing or putting someone in a hospital against their will is going to lead to an improvement in outcomes, then you don't understand the literature. You just don't know it because the literature doesn't doesn't stand by that. It doesn't show any conclusive evidence that that leads to improvement in outcomes. What it does show is in some occasions you can perhaps change someone's circumstance, um, perhaps for the better, perhaps for the worse, but it doesn't really improve those outcomes that you are wanting to ultimately improve. So you have to move beyond belief-based policy and you've got to get into much more of that evidence and the evidence that I put a lot of weight on is the one that you just lifted up, which are people that have already been there, done that. People that have been inside have seen. So I think that's a really good point. And whether we use appreciative inquiry as a method or some other approach, we have to lift up the voices of those folks that know what the solutions are and then surround them with the policies and the financing that supports that. The, the second thing goes back to your, your point around complex adaptive systems and just systems change in general. I mean... I remember heading up or leading into the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, there was an article that was written in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande. And I think, uh, you know, in those days, everybody was reading um, Gawande for different reasons, but he was he had his his finger on the pulse of a lot of the challenges that I think that our country was facing when it comes to redesign. And one of the things that he said was that when you look at systems redesign, if you do it, if you do it the way that it needs to be done, which is, I think, the world that sometimes we fall into, which is you need to burn it down, blow it up, and then start from scratch because there's no way to tinker with this, then people will die. And he made this point very eloquently, much more eloquently than I'm making now. And I sat with that for a long time. I sat with that and I was like, you know, if we do change the structures for mental health, what happens when people fall through the cracks? And then I kind of pushed pause on my academic brain and I pushed play on my realist brain. And I was like, but these people are already falling through the cracks and dying. They're already we're already failing them. So, like, mm -hmm. what happens if we restructure it and actually we lose less less people or yeah. we save more lives? So it, it's a little bit different in our field because I don't think that we've ever had a moment when someone has stood up on a stage or in a uh, at a dais and said, "Here's what we need to do." To blow it up and here's what it looks like the aca as incremental as that was did feel like a blow up for most people in the establishment so i don't know curious i mean i i you know take combining both yeah. of those threads knowing that you've got this profound experience and a lot of ideas on what works but also knowing that we're not in the pl place of being able to blow it up like what is our vision what is that yeah. structure how do we coalesce around what you know to be effective so I think a lot of what's also been happening, so we've got the window open, COVID happened or is happening. I don't know how to talk about COVID right now, but but certainly it changed the world as we we know it um, during and um, currently. And I think one of the things that is, is also playing out is still 
the after effects of COVID. People who are unhoused, Black and brown people who were disproportionately impacted, who were already disproportionately impacted. Now you add COVID and you got a whole new bag ball of wax here. So we have all of these social issues happening. We have the public voters saying, hey, why aren't you guys fixing it? Fix it, fix it, fix it. And, you know, so, um, you know, their their voter poll, their public opinion polls, their, their polls of voters that the elected officials are paying attention to and then trying to respond to for for their their reasons of the, generally their political reasons right for these political reasons to to respond to the voters so i like to lay this out for people so they can understand like well, where is this coming from by the way <laughs> you know windows open they're voters you know i might be running for some kind of political office i've got to pay attention to what the voters say i've got to come out with a plan that plan has to look good it has to look fast it has to sound good it has to resonate with with voters understand bam then i come up with this plan so i think we're playing in that playground a little bit as well and i don't like to leave that out of the equation and i do think also that there is um is, is one legislator told me it's really about the intent we really want to help people okay gotcha i'm going to double down on the fact that you really want to help people so when i think of lived experience i think what has happened is whose lived experience gets us to be able to define what's going on and it has been absent of, at least in California, I can say that it has not been as inclusive of people with lived experience who have been most impacted, I'll put it that way, who have experienced criminal justice systems or criminal injustice systems, whatever you want to call them, involuntary hospitalization, LPS, um, Aladdin and Petra Short or guardianship conservatorship, who have been under sort of coercive um, services before, who are not on, uh, under them now. It, it, it's been absent of those folks. So, but it's been present of family members who are extremely traumatized, hurt, angry, frustrated, pissed off, use whatever language we want to use about these system failures who are fearful for their loved ones. They don't want their loved ones to be homeless or to continue to be homeless, to be criminalized, to continue to be in the criminal justice system or served by the criminal justice system and or to get that call that their loved one is dead. So we have to understand that's playing out as well. And that's an important factor to like, put into the mix, right? So we've got the politics, we got the personal, we got the emotion, we got the lived, you know, we've got the direct lived experience. And I don't know that we've done a good job of being able to say, how do we bring that all to the table? Like that's that's the elephant in the room. The elephant is missing like a piece. Like, you know, where's the leg of the elephant? Like the people with lived experience. So I think some of those things are are happening that can help us actually, and I had a, um, a family member tell me this, not my family member, but a family member who was advocating for some of these more um, quote unquote course of practices. And I've said this all along, there's probably more areas of agreement than there are disagreement. And there are. I find that we spend 90% of our time in 5% of the problem where we end up arguing versus figuring out how to spend 90% percent of our time together collaboratively on 90% of the issue where we agree and could move stuff that would change that other end of the spectrum of the 5%. That's where I want us to go. I love that. And, and let's just kind of, let's stay with that thread for a second, because how do you get the right people in the room? Let me, maybe we could focus on that for a minute. Because I I found in my in my experience that there's a lot of, again, well-intended folks that are in an echo chamber 
They are listening to the same people. They are not diversifying who they're hearing from. Their solutions are almost like pinholes into this vast array of options, but they only see one little hole. They only see one little piece. And that doesn't make for a very satisfying process. Now, policymakers whose lives it basically is is to you know try and advance the public good, uh, the way that they work is that they will have meetings with stakeholders and they'll meet with people like you and I, but that's not sufficient to the coalition that you're describing. Like, what Well, they haven't met do? with me, by the way, Ben, so let's just take me oh. out of that equation. Okay. <laughs> right? Well, well that's, uh, that's a problem then. I mean, I think it may be something that you're reinforcing here is that perhaps they're meeting with the wrong people. And this is where the special interest and the, the entities that like things the way it is they they often get in the rooms the most because they got the the most to lose if things do change. But I, I love the idea. I say this all the time. Like when you are in a room and you look around and you see the same people that you always see, it's probably the wrong room. At least it's the wrong room if you want to be about change. It might be the right room if you just want to catch up with your friends. But it's the wrong room if you want to be about change. And so I the going back to that piece that I wrote for a second and then connecting it to what you were just saying. I feel like if we talk about issues of housing, why does housing not have metrics that are accountable to addressing the mental health and well-being of the population? Why, when we talk about our state budgets, why are we not having state budgets that force different agencies to come together so that housing can be successful on a mental health metric? You know, but what we do is we we default to that, well, that's the health system. That's what the healthcare system is going to do. That's what the mental health system does. That is not what we do over here in housing or over here in parks and rec, over here in transportation or wherever it is. And I think that's just, that's uh, to use our president's favorite word. I mean, that's just a bunch of malarkey. It just doesn't, it doesn't work because it it's, again, it's reducing what positively attributes or negatively attributes to mental health to just healthcare. Yeah, and that isn't that isn't it. If we just have healthcare people in the room, healthcare's track record is not stellar when it comes to doing what's best for people that are experiencing any type of of mental health issue or whatever part of the continuum. It's not stellar at managing funds either. I mean, healthcare continues to spend uncontrollably. So I don't want healthcare necessarily to take ownership over things that are social in nature. Because healthcare has never been about health. It's always been about disease and illness, you know, patch it up, send it out. But I want the community and more of those health entities that don't consider themselves health entities, like the Parks and Rec, like the Housing Authority, to be the ones that have a little bit more skin in the game and responsibility for mental health. Having those people in the room, that coalition, that feels like that could be transformative. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong here. No, no, I, I I hear that one thousand percent. I mean, you know, honestly, I, I I've had this conversation, and I beg the question to just know that I beg the question doesn't mean I have the answer. And I've been asking myself, why do we have a public mental health and a public substance use system that is separate from the health system? Now, I, I do know the answer why policy wise, and when it all started, I get all of that, but I always worry about all of this segregation, and then we ask for equity, parity, whatever we're asking for. And it's kind of like, well, how do you do that 
how do you how do you segregate and, and, and integrate it at the same time? I don't know. I don't I don't know. I just know, you know, as a is a, you know, honestly, as a person of color, as a as a black person, that I have found the idea of segregation leading to equity problematic because it hasn't. It, it just hasn't. And so why are we trying to use that model versus like, yeah blow it up, right? Um, and, and maybe put it all together, put it all back together again under a large public health rubric under which parks and recs fall, housing falls, you know, mental health, health, you know, it all sort of falls under this. Maybe that's what health and human services at the federal level is supposed to do with it. But again, they, they came up with optives. Now, what is an optive? An operating division. Okay, division already tells you something's going on there. <laughs> They're not working very closely together sometimes. So so I think you're you're really speaking into something that I'm wanting people to kind of question, interrogate. You don't have to have the answer, but I think we do have to ask ourselves the question, wait, we do have a separate mental health system. Why is that? And maybe it's because we don't trust the public health system to appropriately serve, support, treat people with mental health conditions, you know, especially those that were coming out of institutionalization back in the day. Okay, I get that. But it's 2023. I, I, I routinely meet with my um, local leadership here in my small town. And one of the things that I've noticed is that there has been this um, inability to accept responsibility for mental health across the various sectors. So what happens, and I can almost, I mean, because I live in such a small town, I know when there's a new person living on the street, because I mean, I drive through downtown, I can kind of tell, oh, he, you know, they're new. Where'd they come from? And And what you find is when you begin to go and reverse engineer and go back up the trail, you start to see that right here in my little community, we have one of the state psychiatric hospitals. And because it's one of the largest state psychiatric hospitals in this region, people will be driven for four and five hours to the Mm. hospital, get dropped off for their 72 hour hold, and then get released. And where do they go? Because they have no transportation back. They don't have any money. They had the clothes on their back. They end up on the street. So when I begin to talk about things like housing or, I mean, uh, it always will connect to other pieces that are failing people within the system. So there's more people on the street because the hospital's got to kick them out after three days. You know, it's stuff like this, Karis, that I feel, I feel like maybe what we have to do is we need to stop thinking of mental health as a vertical. You know, we need to start thinking about it as a horizontal. It's the cross cutting. And I think you, Mm -hmm. you know, people like you have done this throughout your career, but you know, where is mental health in housing? Where is Mm -hmm. mental health in public health? Where is mental health in education? And you begin to ask the questions. What it does is it it better, it redistributes more appropriately mental health to all the places that it actually should be distributed versus just leave it as this bastion of mental health that does very little to address the needs of the population. I think what it does to go back to your little parable that you used earlier or whatever we call those is that it it prevents people from being able to say, well, I was there. I've already been there because it changes so often because of the inconsistencies. I describe it as a lottery. And what we need to do is we need to find as many of those people in those various verticals you know, put them across horizontally and say, well, now we have experts that can actually talk to us about housing, about yep. transportation, yeah. about food. So I don't yeah. know, maybe, maybe we were onto something here. Maybe we need to write this up, but it does feel like <laughs> a very like wicked, big idea. 
you know, you're you're really speaking into something I hadn't thought about, but have thought about, just didn't know how to articulate it. So um, I think you just you just did, which is, you know, this this idea of um, the vertical versus the horizontal, mm-hmm. and knowing that people are across the spectrum, if you will, or across that. Con- I don't know if I want to call it continuum, but certainly across the whole whole spectrum. How do we help people, including you know all of us, be not stay in our comfort zone, in our silos, in our echo chamber, and be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Because some of this is going to make people uncomfortable. Well, I I found a couple of different things that help with that. I mean, number one, there's the experiential. There's the getting people that are making decisions for others to actually go into the places where uh, those people who are most impacted by those decisions are. That could be a clinic. It could be a, a housing shelter. It could be a block in your neighborhood. You know, I just found that there's a huge disconnect between what people think is actually happening and what's actually happening. And so to take them in there, take them to a district within their 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 city, take them to a um, you know a place where the folks are living on the street, and just expose them to what it looks like, the realities of that. I mean, that's hard to do because people like to stay in their comfort zone. And as you already said so well, they don't like to change. But I feel like there's an experiential component here that has got to be felt. You have to see this for yourself. It's the I was on a a different podcast the other day, and we were talking about after the horrific shooting less than a week ago that occurred in Maine, that the legislator from that district for the first time ever voted against um, something that he's always voted for, which is like some type of restriction on guns and not to diverge or go too far down a road here, but it would changed. He saw it firsthand. He knew those people that had died in his community. He saw it. So that changes your mind. And so I think about that. I think about the experiential. I also think about the evidence. And this is uh, where you and I can kind of geek out as academics just for a second. But I think we know enough to make radical changes that are you know, beneficial for most of the population. But I think that when we begin to talk about restructuring and modifying things as, you know, as massive as we have been talking about, then there is a need to have more evidence that shows what pieces of that do does work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, the horizontal versus the vertical, I mean, we've got all the evidence on the verticals, we've got all the evidence that shows this, that and the other, but we don't have some of the evidence on the horizontals. And let's get it. Let's get to that. So I think those are two small, I mean, maybe they're not small. They're pretty big things that actually would help us. You know, I'm I'm just, I'm going back, Karis, just for, to get personal for a second. When I, was a, when I was a clinician, and this is even, you know, starting in graduate school, I remember having this very um, Pollyannish, almost naive appreciation for what mental health was. You know, you read your abnormal psych books, you you kind of watch movies, you have a cultural understanding in your brain until you actually get into it. And you see that it's, you know, few and far between what people write about and you show on TV and what it actually is like in real life. And I remember going to work in the prisons and seeing the number of folks that had untreated mental illness, the number of folks that frankly had untreated medical illness, cancer, diabetes, heart disease. And I'm just watching them languish. I'm watching them just die because there's no system to take care of them, even though technically the prison system is a system. And so I that changed my brain. It really did. Mm-hmm. It made me mm-hmm. think about how we approach care in an entirely different way. 
because I was getting these people when they were at their worst. You know, the only thing that we were giving them was a shelter over their heads and, you know, three meals a day. That's about it. But we were exposing them to trauma, exposing them to malnourishment, exposing them to toxicities that would lead to further problems with their health. And we weren't doing anything else. I can't say that that doesn't happen in other areas outside of prison. I think it does. I think it does. And so I just, I've been stuck on this for 25 years now, but I'm going to do what I can. I know you will too, to kind of bring about some type of radical reform that really appreciates where people are and uses the people that know best who have been there to get there. But I I just don't see, I don't see us, you know, I don't think we're, we're, we're tracking the right things right now. And, and what I've learned from, um, you know, smarter people than I is that out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. And I think the intense simplicity here is that we have to do what's right for people, knowing that what's right for people isn't the same for all people. And you've got to be flexible. You've got to meet them where they're at. You have to make sure that you are targeting the things that really matter most to who they are. And I just don't see that we do that. And so what happens is that we create these one size fits all models that don't work for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. They don't work. So, you know, Karis, I, I'm thankful for you and for your leadership. I'm thankful that we get to have conversations like this. I know that these are heavy conversations to have, but I do think that they matter. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought the blog to my attention. You asked me some questions about it. I would highly encourage people to take a look at the blog and, you know, comment back to you, comment back on the a podcast, wherever, because I think this is this is starting to get to where we need to think about how we're going to move forward. And again, you know, I don't pretend, but in any way of the imagination or stretch of the imagination to have the answers. Um, I, I do like to ask the questions or put my thoughts out there, but my thoughts are just my thoughts. They're not, they're not the answer. The last thing I'll say, and then I'm going to ask you to do some wisdom dropping, which you've done all along, but we're going to do one piece of wisdom dropping is the only thing I want people to remember. And I, I was talking to our, uh, court staff yesterday, judges and staff yesterday about one of our programs. I don't, the other thing I don't want people to forget. So to remember is that we've been talking about people who are most vulnerable, people with schizophrenia, this small population of people with schizophrenia, particularly in California, I'm talking about right now. And it becomes about the diagnosis. It becomes about the symptoms. It doesn't become about the person. It doesn't become about the commonalities we all have because we're human. And I wanted to start off the conversation with them about not this is a population you're going to serve. These are, We're talking about human beings here. You're a human. I'm a human. Everybody in here is a human. What are some things that humans do, no matter if they have a diagnosis, no matter how uh, where their symptoms are. And we actually started with medication because that's been the conversation a lot is this will help people stay on their medication. And I said, but will it? Let's look at the the statistics and research on medication adherence. Let me ask you, how well do you adhere to medication? Do you take it as long as you're supposed to? Do you take it during the time of day? Do you take it as prescribed? Do you take it at all, right? Um, all of those things, we can see that there's a lot of variability and humans Humans struggle with taking medication. Guess what? People with schizophrenia struggle with taking medication. People with chronic illnesses struggle with taking um, medication, but no more so than the general human being on the face of the planet. So I really wanted them to start there so that we cannot rely on this process 
um, having people adhere to the medication, which then fixes all these problems. We need to think about what are all the other things and how do we talk to people when they say, oh, I don't want to take my medication. And how do we sit with that? How do we sit and support a person thinking about the meaning of medication to them, the whys or the why nots, and what are they going to do if they're off the medication? That's going to be so more critically important than the binary. They take it, they don't take it. But the start was human. We're all human. That's we right. all act like certain, do certain things, no matter the diagnosis. And I needed to start there. So yeah. that's my little piece of one last piece of thing to remember. We're talking about people, humans here. So Ben, what, what would be your wisdom dropping? Maintaining mediocrity and sustaining status quo doesn't help us now. It won't help us in the future what we need to do is to aggressively lay out a vision of something that is actually for the people, by the people. And in order to do that, we have to have the right people at the table. We have to have the right people in the room. And it's just not happening, Karis. So my bit of wisdom is that wherever you are in life, whatever you're doing when you're listening to this, whatever position you may hold, there is an opportunity for you to infuse mental health into your platform. Everyone should do it. It is not just people like Karis and I, this is literally everyone's responsibility because sooner or later, it will be you. It will be your loved one. It will be your neighbor. It will be your friend. It will be your coworker. And when it is, you will see exactly what we're talking about. I would rather, and I think Karis would rather avoid you and, and prevent you from experiencing some of that pain that can come from a system that's not necessarily adequate. So do what you can to disrupt the status quo. Do what you can to bring about higher quality. Do what you can to surface the issues of mental health. Because if you don't, you might be on this podcast one day talking about your story, which wouldn't be a horrible thing, but we just need, we need more change. We need more change. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Snaps, claps, thumbs up. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me yet again. And uh, we will have the link to uh, your blog, Getting Mental Health Right for All, so folks can can read it and catch up to what we've been talking about. Um, so thanks so much for joining me again, Ben. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Karis. Thank you for what you do. All right. All right. So that is it for us on this episode of Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I would be remiss. My podcast cast producer would say, wait, Karis, you're supposed to tell them, like, subscribe, comment. Okay, I did that. But most importantly, the thing that I hope everybody does is share the podcast with others who would benefit from the messages and or just need to hear. Hopefully there were messages of hope here too. So please do share. And until next week, we'll see you again on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>